What's up, podcasters? This is Sean Light, the founder and CEO of 4A Health, and I'm very excited to be able to bring you this content today via this podcast. But if you're really serious about launching your career into the stratosphere, you need to consider the 4A Health Club. We have developed an incredible platform geared around producing an environment that is extremely beneficial for accelerating training careers. I'm using all of the resources that I have to help you grow it. It, it wasn't that long ago that I was gra- I had graduated from college with a journalism degree. And just a few short years later, I was standing in the Staples Center in LA as the strength coach for the Los Angeles Lakers. And I wanna be able to use all of the information that I use to get myself there to help you achieve the career of your dreams. I'm opening the doors of our business. I'm giving you exclusive access to myself and my staff for mentorship and consultation uh, opportunities. There's networking, entrepreneurship opportunities. We have live and uh, virtual events for members only. There is exclusive courses and videos and articles coming out every single month, and there is a whole lot more. I really encourage you guys to sign up. I'm so serious about being able to help you and giving you all of the resources that I can to help that I'm giving you the first month free to prove to you that I mean business and that I really want to help. So head on over to learn.4ahps.com. Click on join the club at the top and get started. Put your, put your info in and get that consultation scheduled so we can talk about how we can help you specific to the goals that you want. That's learn.4ahps.com and I'll see you in the first consultation. Strategy that's designed to understand the neurophysiological principles of the locomotor system. It's based on developmental kinesiology postural ontogenesis, and the neurophysiological aspects of the maturing locomotor system. Keyword there is mature. So what does this include? I've had a lot of students in the past that are like, all right, you know, DNS is breathing. Well, that's maybe 1% of it, you know. Um, And this strategy provides a lot of intervention. You can assess patients through it. You can treat patients through it. You can develop exercise interventions and it provides a greater understanding of the functional strategies of the human locomotor system. So here on the screen, we have the basic principles uh, in a specific order. Um, diaphragm function is the first thing that I'm really looking at in a patient. Um, and a lot of people just, uh, think about the diaphragm that it's just a respiratory muscle, which is very true. You know, we take, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, 20 to 23,000 breaths a day. So that's a lot of um, a lot of breaths, you know. And if that is altered, that's a lot of dysfunction throughout 24 hours. Um, so that's the first thing that we're looking at. Number two, we're looking at the integrated spinal stabilizing system, and we're going to go into that and the specific muscles that are involved in that. Sagittal plane stabilization, which is the first type of stabilization that we achieve as uh, as humans, and this is going to usually be achieved between the three and four and a half month mark of our life. Moving on, functional joint centration. Um, And essentially what that is, is putting the joint in the greatest optimal position for biomechanical loading, which is going to increase our our force production and our performance. Differentiation of muscle pulls, both in the closed kinetic chain and open kinetic chain. Moving into isolated motion, constituting to a global 
uh, function. And lastly, we have different movement patterns, undifferentiated with a squat or bear um, positioning, and a differentiated pattern, which we'll go into much later, with ipsilateral and contralateral patterns, which are two patterns that our body simultaneously um, transitions in between. So, development of kinesiology. Why is this important? Well, it emphasizes the existence of the CNS locomotor control. And essentially, all of this, the way that our CNS matures, it happens automatically. Okay, nobody needs to teach us how to grasp, grasp uh, a toy. Nobody needs to teach us how to roll over. Um, so this is all ingrained in our central nervous system. And if somebody is developing, ideally, um, there are different patterns and positions that the body's gonna be in over time. And essentially, as a clinician, we could define a developmental age by, the, by assessing the achieved quality and stage of these motor patterns. Okay, so if you have somebody that is, for example, seven months old, and they're really not able to go from supine to pro a prone position, um, and they're really getting stuck and aren't able to achieve that, that, that rolling over from supine to prone, the seven month mark were, you know, for example, now we're thinking about, all right, something may be going on, there's some type of delay. Um, so essentially, um, this, is, this is the importance of developmental kinesiology with this approach. Postural ontogenesis, one of my favorite words. So, um, human locomotion, unlike many, many other living things on this planet, uh, is immature at birth. You know, Bambi comes out of the mother and is able to run. You know, a lot of um, species out there, actually their mothers disowned them right after birth. You know, imagine if that happened to us. Uh, we, would not be, we would not be able to function. And, you know, I think it's insane you see an animal get born and they can walk immediately. Yeah. When you watch like the Discovery Channel or something, mm -hmm. and they just like just like jog out of there. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm ready to go. Bambi did struggle on ice. <laughs> Wasn't stable. Enough. Yeah. So it, it's quite interesting, and you know, um, if anybody has any comments about this, you know, if you have a, a baby that is neglected throughout their development. Perhaps there's no emotional support. Perhaps there's no, no tactile and afferent feedback to this baby's central nervous system. They are going to develop differently. Um, so it's very important um, in regards to development of the, of the maturation of the CNS, but also structure and function of muscles and bones. Postpartum CNS uh, requires maturation, and moving forward, this will cause anatomical maturation of our system. Once again, like developmental kinesiology, this is genetically determined and automatically dependent on CNS control and afferent stimuli, which is what I just basically touched upon briefly. Postural ontogenesis ensures active posture, and all the positions in the joints of our body are determined by the anatomical shapes. Our muscle function are encoded within our CNS, and basically these motor programs and motor functions become higher level and as our CNS matures. So this is a nice representation, um, postural ontogenesis 101. So our CNS is programming, which drives muscle function, which also drives the anatomical shape of the joints. 
Okay, so for example, if we have some type of CNS lesion, um, that is going to change the way that our muscles are going to be activated. It's going to be changed. It's going to change the ability for us to move. And at a young age, in regards to development, that is going to change the way that our joints are going to be positioned and developed. When you say lesion, when I so. For example, I'm going to go into that, but for example, let's say cerebral palsy okay. for, for an extreme case, you know, um, uh, you know that's that's an extreme disturbance, you know, of the central nervous system. What would be a simple? Okay. Is there a simple lesion? Okay, um, let's say um, somebody that has, let's say, take up a very pes planet, pes planus foot, very flat foot, for example. Okay. You know, is there some genetic component? Absolutely, everything has some type of genetic component, um, but. You know, we know that we could also change the function of that foot. Mm -hmm. You know, so basically, you know, if you look at people like, like my family, everybody's left foot is flat. You know, so essentially, from my parents, the genetics, and also perhaps how I was developed. You know, I've acquired this. Um, you know, um, flat foot. You know, and then moving forward, I have a, a very bad right hip. I have like have bridges in my right hip. So that also could be acquiring my left foot. So basically something like that. Like have perthes, I've, I've, I've competed at a high level, but if you look at my x-rays of my right hip at age five, it would have, it was collapsed. I lost blood flow to that joint and completely collapsed. So that would be still a serious condition, not as serious as cerebral palsy or some other things like that. But my CNS, the, mus the muscles within my hip is completely different than yours, and my joint looks completely different than yours as well. If, like if we just took a picture of your hips at five, and my hips at age five, totally different. Mm -hmm. And you're saying because of the flat foot? Or, or you think there was something in the right hip also? Or do you think they're related? But I think there was something in my brain. Okay. Yes, in the brain. So, the hip on the left, that's somebody's, uh, somebody who has cerebral palsy, okay? Look at the orientation of the femoral neck in the acetabulum. Look how the greater trochanter, it, look at, uh, it's just almost vertical, you know, that's probably like 150 to 160 degrees. The picture in the middle is somebody that has like half perthes disease, um, and you can see the orientation of the greater trochanter. Um, which disease is that? Uh, leg calf perthes disease, which is okay. a vascular necrosis, which is um, of the femoral head. So essentially, the person in the middle lost blood flow to the hip joint. Okay, they lost blood supply to the bone, was inhibited, and therefore, you know, the nutrients that are supplied within our uh, our bloodstream, it's it's not it's it's not healthy. Okay, so the development is going to change, and this is usually diagnosed between ages five and eight years old, most predominantly in males, but you do have it in females, usually unilaterally, and but you do see it bilaterally sometimes. Okay, and then also the picture on the right, that is a, a healthy hip, bilaterally, you know, and let's just look at all those three pictures and see how that all those three shapes right there, that was determined between ages three months and six months based on development. Okay, obviously the patient on the left was not able to upright themselves, or in the three month position, which we'll get into, I guarantee you they were not able to get into a 90-90 supine position at three months old. I guarantee you, because if they were, that hip would not look that way. 
right. For example, let's just say that that was uh, ideal development. Okay. Some extra neural talk for us. We have three levels of postnatal CNS maturation. The neonatus, the first year of life, and two years and greater. So the, when we're a neonatus, we have, we're working on the spinal and brainstem level. Okay, we have functional immaturity, structural immaturity, no balance, no postural function, and our primitive reflexes are positive. Within the first year of life, which is subcortical integration, we have these maturation of postural locomotive patterns, muscle coactivation. We develop the stepping forward and support function. And over time, our primitive reflexes will start to delay and, sometimes, and most likely diminish and you really won't be able to uh, provoke a primitive response. To your, is yep. that like the, when you touch, some, like when it moves <clears throat> let's like say, as a baby? Yeah, um, yeah, so let's say for example, there's a reflex within the hand yeah. if you're over here and three months old, it's gonna, it's gonna go like this. Okay, if or oral facial reflex, um, I believe it starts to diminish after three months. If you took the hand, it's gonna go like this. You know, if I do this, you have the ability to like not have oh, that okay. reflex. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, moving forward, um, after our second year of life, this is where we start to have motor learning. We have selective movement. You know, ask somebody when did they start playing the sport? Oh, I started when I was two or three. Okay, so th th this occurs at a very young age. <clears throat> Um, we have motor dexterity, agility, and sports performance. Similarly to the last slide, um, in the subcortical level, from six weeks to one years old, we start that basic sagittal uh, plane stabilization. Um, we have basics of support, we have um, basic functions, and functional joint centration through development. And in the column to the right, we have we were talking about the cortical level, which is greater than two years, with practical agnostic function, selective movements that we desire, motor learning, and the ability to have, have a conscious relaxation. So all in all, abnormal development in the brain causes abnormal posture, which will cause abnormal geometric anatomical maturation, which will, be abnormal, which will cause abnormal locomotion. If we have ideal brain development, we're going to have ideal matru uh, anatomical maturation, which is going to cause optimal biomechanical loading and muscle pull, which will cause ideal skeletal maturation, which will thus then result in ideal locomotor function. The brain. Yes. How, how deep? How deep into ideal development do they go? And, and when? Like I'm saying, like when do they? When do you intervene? Do, do, do they talk about when? Uh, Great like I read a book about about vision and they talk about I don't know what the exact number was but around seven everybody should be in and I'm not, I'm not saying weeks. this is a thing no so okay. so this book particular book said that around seven years old everybody should have some level of lenses you know whether that's true or not I don't know but that's what they, that's what they're saying so is there a, is there a point where they say uh, you know at this age I should uh, we need to start looking at because this is where things can yes. get funky. Yes, absolutely. Great question. And I'm glad you uh, brought that up because I did not put it in the PowerPoint because it's quite extensive. But um, essentially, I had the opportunity to observe Pavel Kolash evaluate many babies. Okay, And for example, with somebody that has some type of central 
uh, nervous system disturbance, let's say for example, cerebral palsy. He says we must diagnose this within six months, uh, six weeks, okay? And he actually scans almost every single baby that is born in Prague. And how does he? Really? Yes. And how does he do this? And how does he? How can you diagnose such a disturbance? You know, at such at six weeks old. Well, this all goes down to how our brain is wired. You know, he would take a baby. We have postural reactions. Okay, you know how everybody's like, all right, you have to caress the baby and stuff like that. Make sure the head is like, um, you know, not sagging like this. Well, he will take the baby and lift it up from the arm and the leg and see how the body reacts. Okay, and essentially, if I showed you pictures of how through um, their postural reactions and changes of body positioning, it will directly correlate to the developmental positions that I'm going to show you later. So if, there, if he lived, for example, if there was a baby that was laying right here, okay, and I grasped the arms and lifted up the baby. This would be the weirdest seminar ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was wild. It was wild. Just bringing babies in. Like, yeah. I'm just going to put this in right here. <laughs> when, when you're establishing norms in the sense of how a child is uh, handled in Western culture rather than other cultures, mm -hmm. and I believe there was a, there might be a difference in how they actually literally handle babies mm -hmm. at a very young age. Uh, so how is there a comparison? How 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 are you trying to establish the proper way of a baby reacting to a particular? Well, maybe cradling baby is not the best thing in the world, mm -hmm. and maybe we have it backwards. I don't know, but other obviously other cultures treat things differently. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily wrong. So we may think it looks odd and. and you know, harmful, but maybe it's not. I don't know. But yeah. it's just, I was just thinking, like, how they, how is he measuring, or maybe you're not measuring, I don't know, but how are you getting your norms, basically? Beautiful. All right, great question. So, going back to what I was going to demonstrate here, um, and please, anyone who has any type of knowledge in this, please intervene and let's have a great discussion. Uh, but if I take a baby and I lift up the hands, okay, uh, you, should, you should see the baby be able to activate the deep cervical neck flexors at a particular point of development, okay? So if the baby, if I'm lifted up, I'm a baby, right? So if I'm lifted up, I'm like this, I have no deep cervical neck flexor activation. We should have that at three months old, okay? And that, and essentially, this is gonna correlate. So if I'm laying in the supine position 90-90, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I need deep cervical neck flexor activation and to, to, to be part of the integrated spinal stabilizing system. If that is inhibited, I'm not going to be able to get my legs up. Okay, so it's it's similar to the postural reaction. How and it's a quick test. You're looking at it's very specific. You have to know exactly what you're looking for. But he, he would lift the baby up. You'll see that go. Okay, boom. We know something. We know something. It, there's there's a lack of some type of development. Because I can't remember what it was that I was reading. It might have been a newspaper article or a video of you know something. About, we would call a primitive tribe, or how they were handling the baby, which was completely normal to them, but to like Western, yes. it was like, oh my God, what is that? That's like abuse. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. if, if, on the other hand, if they're completely functional as an adult, however, they're you know, measuring mm -hmm. functionality in, in their yeah. society, yeah. is it wrong? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just interesting how we always have our ways of doing it, but other cultures may have other ways of doing it. Yeah. Which one's really Who's right? right, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then, you know, the, the, um, what, what the parents use that, the baby's in front of them, right? And the, the legs are like this, around the mother, okay? 
and let's say the mother's walking around in the mall with their child for two hours. You just put this baby in a position like this, okay, when we have, when our structure, our, our CNS is maturing, it's at its most vulnerable position, and now we're putting them in these volatile positions that can change the, the structure of the anatomical hip joint. So it's, um, I, there, there are baby handling courses, you know. I was literally just going to ask that. There are baby like handling courses. Like DNS? DNS baby handling courses, wow. absolutely. Um, so it's quite interesting. I have not studied that, that, um, that course in particular, but it's, I, I will get there. And it's interesting, you know, you see parents are so eager to get their baby to walk. Let them verticalize by themselves. You know, they, they have to be able, it's okay for the baby to struggle. Oh, I don't want him to struggle. He needs to struggle in order to develop him or herself. Mm -hmm. That CNS has to figure it out. So if you verticalize a baby too soon, you will have changes. Hope, hopefully not, but volume and frequency and all of that duration, you know, that's where we get into trouble. So I have something that's kind of weird, but it always stuck with me. My chemistry teacher um, in college said that, so I don't know how correct this is, but he said that if babies go from like sitting to standing too quickly without um, crawling to the necessary time, that like they won't, develop proper like upper body musculature and like have breathing problems mm -hmm. and he said that like his baby did that and he just karate chopped his knees when he started standing <laughs> so then he like kept crawling for like six more weeks <laughs> <laughs> not today that's a good so, father no, okay. <laughs> i think that's yeah. lesson one in the baby hand yeah, <laughs> yeah. so you know it, it's interesting all of us in this room went through the same development and nobody taught us okay so our cns has to figure it out any questions? I mean, just to reinforce that, so like our neuro professor at Casey and I was talking about, like, um, talking about pediatrics, where in terms of walking and ambulation, if your kid is walking at 12 months versus 15, that's just that's okay. There's no more variation, mm -hmm. and there is you just have to let the central nervous system kind of do its thing. And some people may be faster than others, so I guess there is like a uh, variation in what normal is, and that's what I guess can be tricky. Like, mm -hmm. we always think of what's ideal, but there might be uh, some wiggle room in terms of what ideal is and what normal development is. Yeah, it's amazing. Parenting these days, not that I'm a parent, but I just, <laughs> I mean, freak out over the possibility that your baby will get delayed. Now they're going to fall behind in their studies and preschool. They're not going to get to the right preschool. They're not going to get to college. It's mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard that a worst, one, of, one of the worst things you could do is put them in that little uh, thing where it like supports them for standing this, and then they walk. And then they, or and then they, they can oh, like the jumper, the jumper, yeah. And uh, like they're like held up in like a diaper type mm -hmm. situation and they, they can walk way earlier. Mm -hmm. And now the, the parents can be like, my kid is killed. Yeah, yeah. You, you just verticalize them before you that. Literally, yeah. Wait, so I have a, I have a question. Because I remember I sent you the video of my nephew. Yeah, he was yeah. three months old and he started standing. And you were like, well, like, you can't push it too much, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. Well, he, he loved the thing that he would stand in and, like, play with or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he would, like, bounce off the floor. Mm -hmm. And now that he started walking and he's in shoes, um, like, his leg, he's, like, bow-legged. And his one foot kind of turns in, and my sister's like freaking out. But I, I told her I was like, well, don't like hold him up as he's three months old because you told me that. Yeah, yeah. And now like he's kind of like walking fucking. Yeah, no, it's it's of course it's exciting to get a baby to be right. vertical, but you know we have to let them figure it out. So is that something that will that will stay like his position of his lower you know, limbs? You know, with with proper intervention and stuff like with with 
so for example, you know, his muscle pulls maybe are different okay. because his structure is uh, so okay. Ready? We verticalize the baby sooner uh, than we should. The brain is going to recognize that, mm-hmm. right? And then muscle function is going to adapt to that. And that what is what do muscles pull on? They pull on the bone. So if I have this pulley system that's right. pulling, pulling, I'm going to have change. Is there any predictable things that you that you see like oh, here's another one of these that that results from being upright too early? Is there anything that you see just like seen quite often? I I just see um, parents wanting to just verticalize very soon. They want to walk with their kid. You know, it's an exciting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also I just look at the position, all the different type of ways to carry the baby. You know, having the legs completely spread apart. It's just like it may be more comfortable for the parent, which is, that's very important as well, you know, but um, those are the two things that I usually see. Was there any, any predictable outcome in oh. teenage years or adult years that you're like, this person's gonna have problems with this at 20 years of age? With, or it's just very individualized? It's, it's very individualized. Um, you know, I've only been studying this for four years, so in, t- in a couple more years, hopefully I can answer that question a little okay. bit better. Um, but, but definitely, you, based on their motor behavior patterns and the age and sequence, uh, the age in which they're de- doing some type of pos- position, yeah. the quality in which that they're carrying that out and the efficiency, you can you can predict that okay, this person might have uh, a poor hip, poor anatomical hip, mm-hmm. you know. And, and in regards to my knowledge, that's what I would be able to say in regards to complete precise, like their 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 uh, you know IP of the second digit, you know, is going to be messed up. No, I, I can't do that. I can't do that yet. Yeah. You know, the, the, a lot of, a lot of the um, concepts that you're talking about um, is very much developmental in nature. There's also this uh, concept called the critical period. That critical period is when your, your um, CMS is maturing at a certain level, and then you have to have the right exposure to the right environment in order for all of the pieces to come together. You know, the example that you gave about the bone of the leg, you know, for example, yes, you have all these muscles working, trying to adapt to the conditions that you, you put the child in, but there's also other structural issues, like, for example, um, the density of your bones not well formed, right? Um, and so thus, you're gonna be structurally deficient in that sense. Um, same thing goes with, um, you know, a lot of the kids who may, may skip um, from, say, sitting upright to walking um, without having to crawl. Um, you know, you'll see a lot of literature coming back about the use of so-called tummy time, because mm-hmm. that's that's how you, you know, the concept that you talk about, um, you know, the sagittal orientation, it's so important. Uh, I mean, the, the, the being on prone and then working on all of the, all of the different kinds of, you know, your deep intrinsic muscles of your, of your head, of, of your back, as well as your longitudinal extensors are working together to yes. make those little refinements in your body so that when you start sitting upright, you can actually turn your body all over the place versus, you know, you have this kid, you want to get them upright, and then they're gonna be so clumsy as shit, you know, when, <laughs> when you're walking, and then you also have all these types of sensory issues because your, 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 um, your vestibular system also has to develop, um, not just kind of like linear vertical, it has to happen where there's some rotational components to it, you know, going from prone to supine prone, so supine to prone and whatnot. Thank you.
Thank you, Sal. Appreciate it. So, moving forward. This is the integrated spinal stabilizing <coughs> system of the spine that I was discussing. And essentially, what this is a perfect segue to what Sal was just speaking about. Um, what he said is everything is working synchronously in synchronization. Um, it's, it's a global function. No muscle works in isolation. Um, we, we're, our body is made of slings, okay, and they work in unison. You know, take the force production of a six-month baby's bicep, it's going to be much different, or let's say, let's take a baby in the three-month position, supine 90-90 position, 90 degrees of flexion at the hips, 90 degrees of flexion at the knees, and, you know, 90 degrees of uh, dorsiflexion. Oh, well, we have, we'll say neutral dorsiflexion. Well, a baby could play there all day. You know, if, if, if I try and sit in, uh, lay supine in that 90-90 position, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go a couple minutes, but I'm not gonna go hours, you know? So it, it just shows, you know, I could bench press more than a three-month baby. I, always, I pride myself on that, you know? I could, <laughs> I, you know, I could squat more than that three-month baby. You'll be humbled enough. Yeah, exactly, you know? But it's amazing. Like, I have, I, I talked to some of my students, and I'm like, well, have you ever thought of that? The baby is functionally working in this position for hours. You know, and, and here we are, we have some Division One athletes and even pro athletes that may not be able to sustain that position for more than two minutes without some type of uh, compromise. So, here we go. When I'm looking at the spine uh, or posture, I'm thinking about the deep cervical neck flexors. I'm thinking of the diaphragm, the abdominal wall, the pelvic floor, and the spinal multifidae. So, essentially, we have deep cervical neck flexors are obviously in our cervical region, the diaphragm is in our mid-thoracic, and then the pelvic floor is obviously in the lower section of our um, abdominal cavity. And these should be aligned. You know, I'm gonna go into further uh, different types of postures, and you're gonna see how the orientation of these structures is, is compromised, and therefore their function will be compromised. Um, you know, you have an inspiratory position of the rib cage. We're going to have some issues if it were completely extended like this. The diaphragm is not going to descend like a pistoning function. So it could. Uh, that's the way it, it works with the pelvic floor. We're not going to be able to have that. You know, we're going to have the thoracolumbar extension, and you know, so on and so forth. We're going to have further uh, develop, um, further muscular compromise and um, compensation. So the, the beloved diaphragm and pelvic floor, we could talk about this for probably six hours, especially with all of these great minds in the room. Uh, the pelvic floor and the diaphragm act as a piston me mechanism. It's one functional unit. Okay, so I'm going to stand up for this one. So as we're, as we're breathing, okay, our diaphragm should descend downwards, okay? If I'm in an inspiratory position through compensation over time, you know, perhaps I'd say, a lot like this, you know, I don't know what I would be doing. Uh, but essentially, this diaphragm has to descend, okay? Well, we need another part of that function, that piston mechanism, this pelvic floor has to ascend, okay? And this is how we're gonna go into it, but this is how we develop our intra-abdominal pressure, okay, within the, in the abdominal cavity. So, this diaphragm was contracting centrally, the contours flattened and descends, the abdominal, uh, the, the pelvic floor comes up, creating this piston mechanism, now you could imagine if, I, if there's a balloon right here, okay, and I squeeze this balloon, okay,
okay? Where is that, all that pressure gonna go? Outwards, right? So that's where I need the eccentric activation of the abdominal wall to distribute the air pressure within the abdominal cavity. Um, and what's interesting enough, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor have similar functions in regards to sphincter function. So even though that these muscles are located at two completely different parts of the body, their anatomy is quite similar. Uh, and both have respiratory and postural function. Um, the respiratory part, uh, all of us are pretty good. Well, we're okay at it. You know, are we ideal at it? No. Um, but where a lot of us have a hard time is in regards to the postural function of both of these muscles. Look how all of us are sitting right now. Forward-headed posture, rounded shoulders, uh, anterior pelvic tilt of the hip. We're, we're causing, we're not allowing this piston mechanism to be in an optimal position. Okay, I, this is one of my favorite representations. So what I was just trying to portray with myself was the picture on the right. Okay, so we're gonna have the arrows of the diaphragm descending downwards. We're gonna have the pelvic floor come upwards and the arrows outwards towards the abdominal wall. Um, that's where the air is gonna go, okay? I need to have that eccentric abdominal activation um, in order to maintain that pressure. If I have concentric activation of the abdominal wall, where is that air gonna go? Against the diaphragm and pelvic floor. There we go. So this is how we maintain the equal intra-abdominal pressure regulation. So from knowing what we just discussed, the picture on the left and the picture in the middle which is pathological, which is a pathological breathing stereotype and which is more of a physiological breathing stereotype. So the one on the left, that's gonna be the pathological one. So we're so going for just, yes. uh, just, just as a crossover, I know a couple, couple people studied PRI here. Uh, it's exactly when he says Lisa left is the patho one, right? Correct. So in, in that the dome is the diaphragm there and PRI we always talk about how it flattens out uh, and, it, it, and it's, it's not like descending properly in the in the uh, zone of apposition mm -hmm. of, yeah. of, of PRI. So uh, I find it very interesting as I go through this and Neil I'm sure uh, you, you're seeing a lot of the similarities mm -hmm. between the crossovers between this and PRI and uh, that's that's just a really obvious one mm -hmm. right there. Yeah, thank you. And you know, it, that's what I loved what Sean just said is that there's a lot of carryover between PRI and DNS um, and that approach. In my experience, and this is unfortunate, and this is one of the main reasons why I'm now te teaming up with Sean and with our mission, is that why are we picking and choosing one side? You know, have as many tools in your toolbox as possible. Take a tool from neurology, take a tool from developmental kinesiology, take a tool from engineering. You know, that's what Stuart McGill does. You know, it, we, we must have a lot of tools in our toolbox so we can have variability. So the white line is optimal position, the greenish, bluish line is, is the dysfunctional? So I think that's on inhalation, right? That, that's, yeah. Yeah. So, so, is that yes. where you're showing inhalation? Yeah. Correct. Oh, okay. Correct. So the, the white diaphragm dome is just like at the resting position, okay, okay the pre position. Yeah. The one on the left, and I'm just gonna stand up so this would be easier. So, oh, it's not descending. Yes, yeah. so this is just the pre, the snapshot before I descend uh, and I have my inhale, yeah. okay? So if I have a pathological breathing pattern, very, like a very accessory 
uh, muscle dominance. Mm. I'm going to be okay. So if we can see the axis of rotations, okay, we're going to be like this. We don't have this piston function, okay. I'm going to have thoracolumbar extension. My uh, deep cervical neck flexors, my diaphragm, and my pelvic floor are not going to be aligned. We're looking at the, um, and also, look at, so we have the, the colorful contour here. See how this descends yeah. in this fashion. And this is almost linear and could be vertical. Yeah. So that's the inhalation. Correct. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Right. Beautiful. And then also here, this would be representing the, the pelvic floor. Okay, this is coming up. We want this descent. Descend, descend. Descend, descend, and then eccentric activation. All right, so the breathing stereotype. Um, continued, we've covered a lot of this, but essentially it's the relationship, we have to look at the relationship between the chest, spine, and pelvis. Um, the upper ribs, if they are going to move, it's going to be more in the frontal plane. We don't want that sagittal verticalization of the upper, thora uh, upper thoracic cavity because that means we're using a lot of our accessory muscles in order to breathe instead of our respiratory and postural muscles in order to breathe. The vertebral costal joints or should be free, uh, free rotation should be necessary. The lower ribs should widen, move laterally, and even with some pretty optimal breathers, they will descend um, in that function. The sternum should be stable. We should not see any movement there. And movement should occur at the sternoclavicular joint and not the acromioclavicular joint. So there's three degrees of rotation at the sternoclavicular joint, so very, very minimal. But um, if we have any accessory breathing patterns, it's going to be this. You're going to see that. Okay, I, I, uh, you know, a lot, you know. That's AC joint. Yes, yes. Where I would like. See the difference? I'm, I'm going to exaggerate, but versus totally different. So you said. Uh, Lower ribs widen and move laterally, and you said in optimal breathers they also descend. It could descend slightly. Which is yeah, that's only the second time I've heard. The first time I heard that, I was like, that's not. It sounded odd to me, mm -hmm. but it's just that they're expanding and kind of yeah. It's it's just I don't know if that's talked about quite yeah. often. Because when I heard it for the first time, I was like, really? Yeah. And then it makes sense, but it's hard to picture how yeah. it actually. When you get expansion, you think things are because the ribs. Are actually rotating, but they externally rotate, and then also mm -hmm. descend. It's kind of hard to picture that. Yeah. They descend uh, on inhalation or exhalation. Inhalation. On inhal That's the weird thing when your yes. your ribs are externally rotating, but they're also yeah. slightly descending. It's still hard. I still can't picture it. Yeah. Even though I know theoretically it's correct, I just can't. Yeah. You know, I'll try and have a I'll, I'll try and demonstrate it. Uh, but you know what also blows my mind is when people say that the uh, the ribs are fixed and they don't move. Who <laughs> that? That blows my mind. So is like the descent of the lower ribs like due to like the abdominal eccentric activation? If that's ideal? Yes. The same mechanism that we just discussed in regards to the pelvic the piston mechanism and abdominal wall function, we're gonna see that. So if you think about it, we have the lower ribs, okay? Let's say they're squished, right? We don't have any widening, okay, down here. So 
If I have whitening, look at my bottom two fingers. Automatically, if I just split them apart, we have some okay. inferior movement. That's all I need to say. <laughs> even, if they, even if they rotate up, they can still they can still rotate up and go down the same. So these are my bottom ribs, right? Let's say I'm a very accessory breather. I'm all upper chest. Here, these are going to constrict. Okay. Do you inhale? Yeah. Oh well, yes. It's going to just constrict. You know, do you do you eat ribs? <laughs> the intercostal muscles that we eat are the intercostal muscles that we oh, have that's here. That's what we're eating? The yes. Okay. yes, that's what we're eating. It's, so, it's not the actual bone? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Can you demonstrate that? Yeah, so essentially uh, we have this the... This will be on social media. That's fine. <laughs> so essentially, um, these are the lower ribs, okay? If I'm an accessory breather, I'm up here. We're going to have consistent shortening of those intercostal muscles. Okay, I need to open these up. It could, I could do it through some manual therapy, uh, instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization to help help relaxate that the, the, those muscles, relaxate the nervous system. So then we could then work on the breathing stereotype. So now we can have some expansion. And look at the lower two uh, fingers. If we expand, automatically we're going to have some descent. All right, here's another beautiful representation. So, oh, perfect segue. So look at the arrows on the right, look at the arrows on the left. Pathologic is on the left, physiologic is on the right. And actually, I wasn't even looking at this when I was constructing this presentation. Look at the abdominal, the, the contours of the actual abdominus. It's different, we see that little hourglass syndrome on the left, mm -hmm. we don't see that on the right. Okay, if you take an MMA fighter, you are not going to see that hourglass syndrome, or else they're when they get punched, they are going to have uh, bruising of their, um, you know, organs. They need to have that eccentric activation. For, imagine if you had no eccentric activation of the abdominal wall and Floyd Mayweather punched you. No thanks. <laughs> um, also, another thing that we have to look at are the arrows of the uh, lower ribs, with which we just discussed with Neil. But then lastly, look at the orientation of the navel, the belly button. If we have pathological breathing, that is most likely going to ascend. We need either A, descend, a descent of the navel with proper physiological breathing. It needs to descend and or it's gonna move like this. I don't want any superior uh, motion of that, um, of that navel, okay? And also, and the navel is very important. You know, if you look at swimmers, swimmers that are trained well in practice, the coaches should, will say, breathe to your left and breathe to your right. The poor coaches are gonna say, breathe to one side. And if you look at the, the, the tone of these athletes that aren't trained well, you're gonna, they're gonna, okay, let's say I'm a right-sided breather. Okay, we're gonna have this. And guess what, this navel is gonna go to the right. So if I'm doing a postural examination on somebody, I'm, their tone, their body tone is telling me a story. I don't have to ask you anything yet. I, your body is, t I'm reading it like a book. And then whatever, whatever your history is and whatever you wanna uh, uh, basically tell me is gonna confirm. But essentially, hopefully I already knew that through my postural um, evaluation and uh, the evaluation of your tone. Yes? What would you think about the local area? I, I would have to look into that more to discuss whether what I think about it. But I'll get back to you now. I have a question. Yes. I don't know if this is like relevant, 
because I have a PRI background, but like also with RPR, they always talk about the space you have between your ribs and your pelvis. And a lot of people that are heavy compensators have no space. They say you should have, you generally want like three fingers in between the top of your pelvis and the bottom of your cage. Mm -hmm. But if you are breathing properly and using a piston mechanism that your ribs will open up and descend, like how do you have, how do you go from being compensating to having no space between your cage and your pelvis to then when they open up, like are they opening up forward? I don't know if you're compensating, are they locked down? I, I would say um, we, would have to, we would have to think about the adaptive shortening of the muscles, okay? If we have physiologic, um, if we have um, pathologic breathing stereotype, 23,000 breaths a day, my quadratus when born was not going to be happy. Yeah. You know, uh, there were going to be certain muscles that are not going to be happy, so we could have that adaptive shortening. You know, so perhaps that's what maybe the two finger is not three, because maybe that we have some adaptation. Okay, and also think about this is perfect. Thanks for asking that question, because we have a postural function of these muscles that we've been talking about. We're good at the respiratory function. We need the posture. If that postural uh, mechanism is compromised, we have to get stability from elsewhere. Okay, so perhaps that's what the lack of space is. Of course, all of us are uh, different in our uh, maturation and mm -hmm. our skeletal maturation. So, of course, we're gonna have some differences, especially between males and females. You know, so there are case by case, but that would be my best answer in regards to adaptive shortening of muscles through com compensatory patterns, through 23,000 breaths a day. All right. So we look at all the different postures on the screen, okay, similar to what Sean and Neil were showing us in their PRI seminars the last couple of weeks. Um, so the one on the, all the way on the left shows well centration of the cervical spine over the thoracic, thoracic spine over the lumbar spine. Look at the dome of the diaphragm, look at the dome of the pelvic floor. Pretty, pretty in unison. Okay, that's going to descend, pelvic floor is going to ascend, and with that eccentric activation of the abdominal wall, those arrows from the abdominus is going towards the spine. Guess what? That's caused, that's stability through air pressure distribution. Okay, so just by our breath alone, we could stabilize the uh, lumbar spine better than if we had some type of compromise. So, you know, people like, oh, you have to do a lot of core, you have to do a lot of core, you got to do a lot of core. Well, first, you have to learn how to breathe, use the postural and respiratory function of these muscles, and voila, you don't have to do a thousand crunches a day. All right. Um, looking at the second picture, that's the open scissor mechanism, which, we're just, which we were talking about before. Orientation of the pelvic floor and the diaphragm changes. You have the inspiratory position of the ribcage. Um, and look what automatically that does to the lumbar spine, the thoracic lumbar junction. It's going to go into extension. So if I see somebody with, you know, a pretty prominent um, rib flare, okay, or inspiratory position of the abdominal wall, um, I know automatically, I don't have to look at their back, I know we're going to have thoracic lumbar extension, okay, and we're going to have anterior pelvic tilt. So looking at the third picture, this is obviously a different postural pattern, but we see the rib cage is slightly more anterior than the pelvic floor. 
and in the picture on the right, we have a little bit uh, the, the opposite, the pelvic floor, and the pelvis is slightly more anterior than the um, diaphragm. Okay, and obviously look at the arrows, and that's going to cause those arrows are going to be where a lot, a lot of our stress is going to come from. So obviously, if you're the person on the right, fixing this orientation, or if you're this person, fixing this orientation, fixing this orientation, you'll hopefully, I wanna achieve this. Intra-abdominal pressure. Um, so, we need the contraction of the diaphragm against the eccentric contraction of the abdominal walls, the paraspinals, the quadratus lumborum, serratus posterior, inferior, and the pelvic floor muscles. The correct IEP distribution um, is a feed-forward mechanism of, of the diaphragm. Um, before any type of movement, I should have this feed-forward mechanism. Um, if I don't, well, we're gonna have some compromise. The central tendon uh, created by the abdominals on the ribs uh, causes a puntum fixum, or a fixed point for our body. The lower ribs spread apart, widen, widening the intercostal spaces and intra-abdominal pressure increases, increases in all directions. Where, I'm sorry, the serratus posterior inferior, where is that? It's precisely. down here. That muscle is never discussed. Never discussed. Yeah. Is it just one of those muscles that goes along for the ride? Yeah, there's a good chance we're going to get a fire, fire, fire alarm test. So. <laughs> Stay poised. I'm sorry, what you're saying? I just. <laughs> so I've always looked at that muscle, and just no one ever talks about it. So I just always wonder if it's just a muscle that just goes along with it. Mm. Or if anyone ever has dysfunction in that muscle. Yeah. Because But no one ever talks about it. So yeah, I've always right. seen it, because I always look at like, the anatomy mm -hmm. program. Like, why is that thing there? I know it's a probably respiration. Mm -hmm. I know it's a respiration yeah. muscle, but no one ever, it's just never discussed. Yeah. I always wonder, like, does anyone ever have any dysfunction with that mm -hmm. one? Because yeah. no one ever talks about it. Yeah. So. We'll find it. Yeah. So we've been speaking about this for the last hour and at three months to four and a half months we achieve the sagittal plane stabilization. This is as Sal was mentioning before, we need this. Okay? In our development we need sagittal plane stabilization, then frontal plane and then transverse. And this goes into regards to strength and conditioning of, your, of, of athletes, rehabilitation from the athletic training, chiropractic world, or the uh, physical therapy world. We need to uh, achieve sagittal plane stabilization before I go into frontal plane movements, before I go into transverse movements. If I have compromise at the sagittal level, I'm going to be falling into the frontal plane, okay? If I'm a golfer, Okay, I'm going to say, you know, that my sagittal plane stabilization is quite good, but not optimal. Right? So essentially, it's a transverse sport. I'm moving in the, the transverse plane. Well, if my sagittal plane stabilization is not, uh, is not good, okay, if my uh, intra-abdominal pressure distribution is not good, okay, if I lift it up my shirt, you're going to see an indentation on the left side. Okay, it's hard to get air in there. And then that's what also we were discussing with PRI, right? Well, guess what? If I'm carrying out this transverse movement, 14th, 15th, 16th, 18th hole, 
I'm getting tired, so I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna come here. A, for example, I'm not gonna get my weight to my right side. Also, when I come into the backswing here, look, I'm gonna do this. I need to be here. Also, think about the cervical spine, the deep cervical neck flexors, the diaphragm, and the pelvic floor. The moment I do this, we just decentrated everything. So, I'm not gonna be- With, with that being said, how far, how, how far off do you find strength and conditioning? Like classic strength and conditioning, what we see in like any weight room we go into. I strength and conditioning in the weight room, the rehab room in PT places, and the and the rehab rooms in the AT departments. I, I think we can do much much better job with our sequencing. Right. If you can't ask, if you can't answer, why is your A two exercise in A two and it's not A three, or why is it in your B section and it's not in your C section? Sure. If you can't answer that, that's a problem. So, like, my thought is that everywhere I look, and uh, any any time I've seen anybody get like a real performance change, like dramatic, mm -hmm. it's just by changing position. Mm -hmm. I've been lifting for I've been lifting for however since a little bit before high school, and I jump marginally higher, but when I change my position, I jump significantly higher, and it's just a little something, just a little change there. Yeah. So my thought is like. I mean, obviously this is like a worldwide dilemma <laughs> issue at hand here, but um, like in my head, I now I'm much more gravitating towards the, the, the idea of, okay, well, let's just train the position, get into it, get uh, train strength there and train aerobic endurance to maintain it throughout the competition period. And then, and then like you're gonna be a much more explosive athlete yeah. Uh, it, would you say that's a fair assessment? Uh, perfect. I'm gonna add one more thing. Okay. And train the conscious awareness yeah, of that of patient in oh, that position. Yeah. If they're not conscious of it, man, I got. I have to get that higher order thinking from the cortical to subcortical. Okay. If I do something enough, repetitively, 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 as you were saying, you know, with best NBA players that right. you've worked with, don't practice in the off season. Right. You know, so essentially with that conscious awareness, over time, adaptation will occur. And guess what, I don't have to remember how to shoot a jump shot, even if I took three months off. Purposeful. Mm -hmm. that, yes. Always say, everything sure. you keep moving, always say purposeful. Sure. Purposeful. I don't think people realize what he's getting at. Well, the stuff is so tedious, right? Yeah. So like when you're actually it's, doing it, it's, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> it sucks, and it's, you know, like it's not, it's not, one of the things that I'm preaching now is like this new, my, the new wave of mental toughness. And it's like, like mental toughness really not, is no longer what you're doing in the gym and sweating and you know, you got the Gatorade dri dripping from your, from your pores because nobody's watching and the lights are off in the gym and you're running stadiums. It's now how long can you mentally lock in on, a, on working on your breathing or, uh, or like him and I were doing this thing the other day. I don't know what it was, but we were just like shifting into internal rotation on one of the hips. I physically could not do it. And I wanted out of the exercise immediately because I was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. But that's mental toughness. New mental toughness is now, mm -hmm. it's that yeah. if, you're, if you're on that level, yeah. right? Yeah, in interesting enough with, with, with that, um, you know, Meg knows I like to squat in the weight room. <laughs> and there are times where I'm so amped, I'm so sympathetic before I get underneath the bar. And I've noticed that if I drive myself into a sympathetic response, fight or flight, my lift is gonna suck. Of course, when I carry out and pick that bar off the rack, 
I'm going I'm gonna explode you know I need that sympathetic but I before I take that rack I'm on the wall closing my eyes lowering my heart rate lowering my blood pressure going to a parasympathetic state because if I'm in a heightened state fight or flight I may have a biomechanical fault and I don't want to injure myself so it's it's that's that's so you only want to switch on the sympathetic state as you move the weight is that what you're saying right when I come from mm -hmm. I, I would come here mm -hmm. boom locked in I'm ready to explode and then get out of it again one, one, uh, while I'm performing the action, I'm going to be sympathetic. No, no, I mean, like in between, in between a set, you try to go parasympathetic. Uh, not in everything. I'm just saying, like if I'm going heavy weight, where right. where I'm really just, let's say I'm just squatting, you know, just for today, some working on right. some strength. I, I want, I'm going to change because if I'm so amped, I've noticed that then my 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 postural. At well, yeah, it's, it's going to be recover as well. Yeah. in between. Yeah, not going to be as purposeful. Yeah, yeah, and think about it when fourth quarter. You know, two minutes left. If I'm, of course, I'm going to be in a sympathetic state, but if I can't lower myself in the huddle, I'm going to miss what coach says. And the attention to detail in that huddle needs to be optimal because guess what? If I don't hit my screen correctly, if I don't know where this guy's going to be running off the double screen, I just lost the game for us. And if it's game seven of the finals, which is I've worked my entire life for, I'm going to be pretty upset if I can't lock in. I think a huge part of that is the uh, your emotional control in parasympathetic versus sympathetic. Okay. Once you go sympathetic, your emotional control is pretty much out the window, which is where you lose your purposeful movement, yeah. conscious thinking, yeah. and go to a very much more protective state of aggression, mm -hmm. which is going to lose weight. But to come back to parasympathetic and regain that emotional control and focus. No doubt. So I just one other thing is I I just joined the gym about two months ago now, and I know there's this thing about you know people saying, "Oh, if you don't, it's not for the weight room." Every exercise, because I'm I am uh, a I'm patho, so if anyone's taking player out, you know you're gone. So <laughs> you like to pattern, right? You like I like the to extension. So I do every every freaking exercise I do is modified. To try to keep the left side a little bit more, and since I've been doing this, since I returned to the gym, and now I have my, I'm evening out my leg length issue, no soreness, and I'm getting stronger. No soreness anytime. Like my legs used to get so freaking sore just from any exercise. Even if it was just body weight, if I did a new exercise, I would get insanely sore. No soreness. I'm getting stronger, so why not? Yeah. Like, I don't know if it's, maybe if you're training for football and you can be as strong as possible, I don't know if that's Stanford's philosophy though, because I remember a newspaper article years ago about it. But why, why so anti-modifying, why stay in extension during exercises if you don't need to be, if you can get a better training effect out of it? So I, I don't understand when people are like, oh, that's not normal, you shouldn't, don't modify exercises to stay in a better position, just lift. I just don't see it that way. And I guess it depends yeah. on your goal also, but I'm not sore at all, I'm getting stronger, I'm, Filling out my shirt again, like you look good, man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and all it does, especially for just normal lifters, who you know, people who are who are not trained for a particular sport, they they don't need to be doing a lot of this stuff in such extreme states of extension. They're just setting themselves up for future major issues. I'm watching it all in the gym, like shit. I used yeah. to do. I used to do the same crap. Yeah. They think they're using good form because they're, you know, they're arched, they're doing the rows, they're doing flat, you know, 
tricep kickbacks, and I was like, oh, do you know what you're doing to yourself? Yeah. You can easily do that with a neutral spine, feel it better, get just as strong, probably get better muscular development because now you're balanced instead of going into this, these extreme states of extension. The idea that you shouldn't do this stuff in the real is just... Yeah. Fitness is one of those industries where it's... I'm sure there's a lot of them out there. Some I can think off the top of my head where everyone just assumes they know what to do. Yeah. And it's like an assumed thing across the board. <laughs> like, like if I, uh, you know, like if I'm not getting my results, I'm just not working hard enough, right? I'm not, I'm not doing the craziest stuff in the gym, which is why. And it, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, people are Googling workouts, which is, but you know, we've all been there, right? We've all done it. And, but it's like, it's, it, when you get to this level, when you're sitting in this room, it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're killing. I'm talking about people that, who know like about, say, PRI or DMS. And I remember listening to a podcast. I'm not going to say who the people were. But the one guy who was like a, a, a well-known person, like, oh, yeah, PRI, not for the league. Like, yeah. Why not? You can't take away the fact that you're asymmetrical. Right. You can take that into account. Right. Just, it doesn't make sense to me. Unless you have, yeah, honestly, it doesn't, it just doesn't. I can't even be like, unless you're in this situation. Maybe for football training, it's different because, you know. I think the only thing that they probably don't get about the weight room, and maybe, I don't know if this is where that person said, but I've been on record saying the same thing, and I don't think they understand, like, the dynamic of what it might be, what it might mean to be in, like, a professional weight room where a guy will literally tell you to get out of my face with that. You know what I mean? Like, it belongs, no question, but, uh, like, if I, when I worked for the Lakers and I had somebody do... If I had somebody do breathing, I got 30 seconds to make them jump seven feet higher, or they'll never talk to me again. Right. You know that I think that's where they where right. they where they where where they don't necessarily understand. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean the science of it, absolutely yeah. belongs in there. The science of this belongs in there. But the dynamic. I mean, even the, those of you guys in the college setting. Uh, you know, I remember Coach B used to have us. I hope he's watching right now. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> I used to, we used to do like alligator breathing from from FMS. Yeah. And dude, are you kidding me? I wasn't doing any of that. I was over there like, yup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like I remember doing dead bugs on the court at Quinnipiac and say and 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 he would always preach to get our low backs down, obviously. And I was just like, no, it's stupid. I don't feel. I feel way more when my heart's back. So I would do dead bugs arched back because like, I feel it more, right? And yeah. and it's just like the dynamic of an athlete, like, and it's again off that we we already know what to do in the weight room, right? It's not. I, when I started strength conditioning, I, I thought I was good. I thought I knew it all right from the start. Sign me up, NBA. Here we come. <laughs> and, uh, like way off, yeah. but that's that's yeah. what I thought, and that's yeah. that's the stigma we fight. Yeah, I feel like we've learned to. Um, like, I'll get my kids into, like, a neutralized PRI-based position or coach a position that way without telling them, like, what I'm doing to them. So, like, I used to do a lot of, like, an individual basis, like, putting them, like, let's get you at 90-90, getting you to feel, you know, hamstring adductor, you know, let's get you out of that anterior position. But now I've learned a lot from B and, like, PRI just to, like, sneak it into an exercise. Like, hey, we're going to put our left foot up here today. Like, don't tell them, just have them do it. And they'll struggle, and they'll understand. Like they'll understand that they're feeling it more, but they don't necessarily know what what we're doing, especially sure. with like rotational sports. Sure. Like, do you want to throw ninety eight hundred miles an hour? Then let's do it this way. <laughs> you know, instead of saying like we're going to do a PRI based program. Yeah, absolutely. And what we're all getting into, and with this discussion right now, is what the next. I believe is the next slide with functional joint centration, and um, the biggest buy-in for my athletes, no matter if they're in the NFL 
if they were in Division One, whether they were a high schooler. The biggest buy-in that I can get is put them in a position that they say they own. <laughs> okay, I'm going to show you that you can't hold it for 15 seconds without going like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if Sean, if you could speak upon this, what well, we were working in the office the other day with the rotator cuff. You know how we just put you in a position. Oh yeah. And then different pressure points on your hands, how you felt different muscle fibers. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what the hell you're doing, no. but. Um, <laughs> or what you? What did you feel? I mean, it was, I felt all, well, it was actually interesting because he was just putting pressure on different points in my head and we were, we were uh, prone. We were in a prone three month position. Okay, yeah. and I'm gonna show, I'm gonna, I'll show you what position we were at. Okay, um, okay. So see the top left, right there. That's the position that we were in. Yes, so we, and you just, just pre put pressure on, on different points in my hand as I like lifted it up and it was, it's like a piano like going down the keys of my of my uh, of my rotator cuff. Uh, I was he was like yes. he's like what do you feel? Uh, I think that's like supraspinatus. And then he's over there getting his jollies while I was doing it. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like infraspinatus, and then uh, Terry's minor, and it's just literally going down the line. And you know I worked in pro baseball for five years, and I mean how how cool would that have been to have something like that? And I mean anything you do for the, if you want to talk baseball buy-in, anything you can do for a shoulder, mm -hmm. they'll they'll be in on that. Uh, and that would have been really really cool to have some sort of variations off of that. You yeah. know, back in the day, but I mean. And then we talked about how botched rotator cuff strengthening is in 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 you know the, the bands and whatnot. But uh, but I, I was really interesting to see how that how that how that plays out. Yeah, because I, at first I was like, I'm going to put you in a position that's going to cause your rotator cuff to be on fire, without doing any concentric or eccentric activation. It was actually asymmetric. I had him in the prone position, and I, all I had him do was extend his wrist, and I went from second uh, knuckle, third knuckle, fourth knuckle, fifth, and different parts of the hand were activating different parts of his posterior chain swing. From the distal isometric resistance of the hand was activating his subscapular. So I don't need to do a internal rotation exercise to strengthen the subscap. Perhaps I put him in a functional centrated position, dynamic functional position, and just apply some uh, resistance in the distal segments with proper breathing patterns. Man, are those things gonna light up like a Christmas tree in the whole time. What would the pinky correspond with? I, I'm not gonna, I, I can't tell you exact muscle, but I would. You got oh, it. You got it. You're, you're very ready, you're smiling. <laughs> you got it. No, no, no. <laughs> Say it for the camera, Neil. <laughs> no, no, that's just, that's just things that come up over lifetimes and thinking I have pre-arthritic yeah. pinky that I got a full squat finally. Mm -hmm. after stretching my calves, I got into a full spot, squat, and then I found this you know, more arthritic finger. So just all these little things, I'm like, I just need, I always like to hear whether it's you know, Chinese, uh, you know, foot, reflexology, like, I always find it amazing with reflexology, you know where the, the spine is, mm -hmm. arches of the feet. People who are supinated, they can go supinated. Sure. So I'm like, holy shit, they know it. Mm -hmm. If you're not yeah. pronating, you're locked up. Like, so I always like yeah. to hear other disciplines I don't, I don't have an explanation for this. Yeah. Well, that's why we're on this journey together, man. That's why we're here. I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Right so, um, yeah, great discussion. Thank you. So, oh, and going back to the three-month prone position, this brings me back to a story at Stanford University. And my boss at the time, Scott Anderson, one of the greatest clinicians I've ever will meet in my life. Um, 
and I am so thankful for him. But um, I went to him, I had a synchronized swimmer who was having a hard time doing lifts in the pool. You know, and uh, based on the orthopedic evaluation that I learned in school for four years, well, I came to a determination that we have some type of muscle weakness because, you know, on manual muscle testing, there's weakness of the shoulder, you know. Specific muscles, I was telling him, yeah, you know, three plus out of five, four minus out of five, yada, 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 whatever scale you want to use. And my boss looks at me and he goes, should, should we get an MRI? Like, this is bad, you know, she can't lift. We're, we have to win a national championship. You know, a lot of pressure's on the line. But like, you're telling me that there's a muscle tear because there's weakness. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure with the mechanism and how she's been uh, complaining of decreased strength over time over the last three weeks, you know what, it, it's not an acute situation. So actually, I don't think there's a muscle tear. So then he's looking at me and he sees my, my fireworks in my brain, like what is going on? <laughs> and he goes, it's not weak. The neural connection between the, the brain and the muscles of the shoulder is needs to be needs to be cleared up. So I trained her in that three month position. I didn't do one internal external rotation exercise. I did not. We, we did some low trap, you know, open kinetic chain band work. Uh, to, but it really, it's not to. I wasn't saying to strengthen the low trap, which what I would I would hear a lot. I want. I I, I choose that exercise because what people will do with the band, they're going to be here. Oh, give me the black band because this is too <laughs> you know but no what I want you to do is and, and, and mind you I'm not putting it to an internal rotation position I want external because why am I going to put this into uh, a decentrated position I want to be here why is this is anatomical position for a reason so I'm here and I'm, I want this I want okay let's descend okay and now let's use the scapula and the glenohumeral joint functionally together, and now pull this band. And there, you know, I take the lightest resistance, and you're like, oh my god. And then as fatigue comes into play, then you'll see this. And then you see this. So why am I gonna, if I start seeing this, why am I gonna train them during that? I'm not. Exercise is done. So, Based on the evaluation, she had muscle weakness, right? Um, we didn't do traditional strengthening exercises, but within six weeks, she was full strength. Um, her scapular thoracic rhythm improved dramatically. Um, the tone in which of her power spinals, when she went up into that three-month prone position, if I show you the video, you're gonna see the right, um, the, the right uh, power spinal muscle whoom, on fire. Okay, if I showed you the video at the six-week mark, it, it, the tone is the tone is not there. Okay, the, the hypertonic state's not there. It was a good healthy tone, and it wasn't hypotonic. How does the pattern of stabilization and respiration become disturbed? Of course, there could be a congenital abnormality, abnormal early development. We have cultural, sports, and habitual reasons for these compromises, um, and any type of protective pattern due to pathology. Functional joint centration, we've been touching upon this a lot. And this is achieved through coordinated co-activation, co-contraction of the antagonist uh, muscles. So greatest, we, 
this allows us for the greatest biomechanical advantage, which is ideal loading. You know, if I'm gonna decentrate the shoulder joint, well, I'm gonna decrease force production. I'm gonna decrease co-activation of the shoulder girdle. I'm gonna increase repetitive strain, and I'm gonna increase loads on the joints, discs, and muscles. So it's very hard to throw a baseball efficiently. You know, with, without, we're, of course we're gonna have some compromise. Um, you know, that's, we need that for the sport to, to, to compete at a high level. But if I can't train and get an athlete into a functional, centrated position, well, I'm only going to inhibit the, uh, I'm only going to inhibit their ability uh, to, to be coordinated in that, but also I'm going to be increasing all the strain, and I'm not I'm not fixing anything. I'm actually loading them even more in, in, in improper ways. So that shoulder girdle, for a guy that throws 96 miles an hour, that shoulder and elbow have a lot of force going through it. The the load on the joints, the muscles, the ligaments is is so great. So why they they, they have to do that in a decentrated position to throw 100 miles an hour, but why my my re, reason why I'm doing this is to make them to improve their efficiency and create their awareness through a, a positive experience. So functional joint centration is what I'm looking at all the time. If I have somebody that's doing a let's say a half kneel exercise, you know, we're on one knee and their their hip is hip hip hiked, and I'm doing a split squat, and we have this hip hike. Well, now we're getting adaptive shortening of the quadratus lumborum. The centration orientation of the femur within the acetabulum is now compromised. Glute activation will decrease. Hamstring activation, co-activation of the hamstring and the uh, um, quadriceps is going to be decreased. And I guarantee you we're going to have changes in the calf and the foot. This is a good representation of the centrated joint and a decentrated joint. And what's very important here is so looking at the resultant vector of, of, of this compromise. So we need the concentric muscle activation and eccentric muscle activation within external motion, within the joint, to have proper resultant vector. If we have an imbalance between the concentric and eccentric muscle action, we're gonna have, and with some type of external motion against resistance, um, we're gonna have uh, a compromised resultant vector. This comes from your biomechanical toolbox. This is what a decentrated joint looks like. Um, so look at that right hip. Look at the contours of the left picture and look at the contours on the right picture. Why am I going to train somebody on the left like that and put load onto them? My first thing is I want them to understand how to sit into the hip so the contours of their glute, the tone of their glute is like the one on the right. And this could take five minutes, this could take three days, this could take longer. Everybody has different cortical awareness. And this is the first thing that I'm, when I'm training somebody, rehabilitating somebody, I need them to understand what joint centration is. And at first they look at me like I'm crazy, but one of the most amazing things when I feel like I've, where, where I've had the um, confirmation that I did an okay job or a pretty good job with my athlete is when I'm no longer with them. And they say, Mark, I know when I was starting to become faulty. I felt this, I felt that, you know, I, and that's, that's where I, I'm like, okay, I did my job. Because Craig Liebenson, I was at his course a couple of weeks ago, 
and he said, and for those of you that don't know, he's, you know, in the, he's a chiropractor by trade, but he is uh, pretty revolutionary in the spinal rehabilitative world. And he was essentially saying, um, you know, we, we, we have to, have, we have to have this awareness, um, first and foremost. We have to provide the athlete and client with a positive experience. And from there, that, that means you did a pretty, pretty damn good job. You know, if, if, and the, the last thing that he said was saying, judge yourself by the clinician, judge your abilities and talent as a clinician coach or whatever job you do by what your clients and athletes do when you're not there. If I'm in the room and they're doing it well, well, yeah, that's because I'm there. If I'm not there and they're doing it well, shit. That brings a tear to my eye because I know I'm doing something right. All right, so here we go. This is, these are the developmental positions that we're, um, that, that we're looking at. They're three months old all the way to 13 months, uh, 12 months, 13 months old on the screen here. And this could be accessed off of the DNS website. Um, they have some great resources there. And, you know, we have, uh, this is a beautiful representation of the prone and supine positions. Okay, so the three month mark, see the three-month position of the in supine and you see the three-month uh, prone position you know moving down the chain and over to the right same exact thing each month is correlated to a different position so going back to what we were talking about the postural reactions um, you know the representation of the the babies on the left if I change their position we're gonna have subcortical activation of muscles in order for the baby to basically fix the posture that the body was just put in. So if we have some type of compromise there, we're gonna be able to correlate it through ideal development, um, or uh, correlate it to ideal development and make a determination whether this person is you know, slightly delayed, on track, or, or above, uh, you know, in front of the curve. So now moving into our ipsilateral and contralateral patterns. And once we go over this, then we're going to go talk more about how do we take all these, the, the strategy, this approach, um, and how do we apply it to our clients and our athletes. Um, so here we see um, a bit, the picture and representation on the right. Um, and if, if I could just ask for no pictures for this one, please, and the, and the next one. Um, so essentially, this develops, the ipsilateral patterns develops between the three and seven month mark uh, from the supine position. Okay, the support function is on the same side of the body of the arm and leg. So look at the baby's right arm and the right hip. That is the support function. It is in contact with the floor. Okay, the left hip and the left arm, those are responsible for the phasic function. Okay, this baby is rolling from supine to prone. We need that support system from the right side, that support base for the open kinetic chain function of the phasic uh, segments and extremities. This is very important because this is how we, it, we correlate it to sport. Um, the pelvis and ribcage rotate in the same direction in the transverse plane. Take a golfer, if his ribcage and his pelvis is not rotating in the, in the same direction in the transverse plane, this is, uh, he, I'm telling you he's not in the pros. Yeah, he, he's not, He's not playing in college. So 
the, with ipsilateral patterns, we're going to see a phasic function and a stabilizing function on the, on, the, on the same side. So this is the ipsilateral pattern in sport. If you look to the top, uh, top right um, picture with uh, this picture, look at this pattern, his right arm and right hip. Look at this pattern, look at his left arm and left hip. Those are the support function of this throwing mechanism. The right arm and the right leg, if you know uh, pitching biomechanics, these are gonna be phasic functions and they're going to be essentially an open kinetic chain as he's trying to deliver this pitch. So look at this baby's right elbow in contact with the, with the floor. Look at his left elbow. If there was a floor underneath him, he would be in that position. Same thing with the hip and the knee. If we look at Roger Federer, um, Sean and I were talking about this yesterday, and we've, he's probably one of the greatest movers on this planet. Has he had many injuries? No. Why? Because he's a great alpha mover. Look at his left elbow, look at his left hip, support function, same exact thing as the pitcher. Open kinetic chain phasic function of the right arm, and the, he's going to have the stepping forward of the right hip. If we look at Tiger Woods over here, same exact thing, left hip, left shoulder, stabilizing function, phasic function of right shoulder, right hip. So when I'm evaluating an athlete, I had a tennis player, Kunifiak, um, one time, and this is when I was like, wow, like this is some powerful stuff. Being able to take these DNS principles and applying it to your evaluation and observation of their sport. Like I said, the body's going to tell you a story through the tone, but the body's also going to tell you a story through its motion. So I had an athlete that came up to me once who had a lot of right hip. He was a right-handed player. He had a lot of right hip pain, TFL pain, uh, right oblique pain, and he would come in just completely jacked up. Like, I'm in, I'm in a lot of pain, and it's my senior season. I need to, get, I need to, I need to do something about this. And I was like, perfect. Mind you, I haven't seen him ever play tennis, okay, not once. And based on the developmental positions that I put him in, um, and it's important to know that every, every position that we have is a test. You know, what the position that you're in, you're in, you're in, I, it's telling me something. Um, you know, you have a flexion intolerant hip person, guess what, they're most likely sitting in their intolerance. You have somebody that is extension biased, likely sitting in an extension which is like wow why you know but it is if you observe it it's of course we have some variation but that's 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 really the common link um, so we are in our dysfunction and we have to train out of it so going back to this this tennis player based on my evaluation how his body reacted to the postural changes and the external resistance that I was giving him I said, I stopped my evaluation and got up and said, ma'am, correct me if I'm wrong, but your backhand is where you lose most of your points in matches. And he goes, didn't say much. I said, there's no way you can, with all this adaptive shortening, that you can effectively hit a backhand. And I don't play tennis, but I'm telling you that your backhand, you don't rotate on your hip, so right-handed player, if I'm coming in, I'm backhand, all right? I need this, this motion, okay, to come around this hip. 
to de deliver that, 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 that ball over the net. I said, but you can't do that, unfortunately, but we will get you there. What you do in your backhand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you side bend, sometimes you may even jump into it, and it's only a drop shot. It's only a drop shot. Looks at me, he said, let's get to work, because you're right. <laughs> and that's when I was like, wow, you know, this is some powerful stuff. And, and that's when, you know, immediate buy-in, but also it's very encouraging for a clinician because it's, with what you're studying, you're finding patterns and, and you know how to intervene. Um, so, you know, am I going to be strengthening the TFL? Absolutely not. No way. You know, am I going to be strengthening the adductor of a soccer player? No, I'm not going to be strengthening it concentrically. We were talking about this yesterday. We must, neuroplasticity is a real thing, okay? And muscles are elastic and have elastic properties. We have concentric and eccentric um, properties of these muscle functions, so I must lengthen that. You know, adductor and rotator cuff, we must lengthen these muscles for these performance athletes. I can't get the external, why am I gonna put the external rotators in a more contracted, adaptively shortened state for, for a pitcher? I am not doing them any good. I may be able to increase force production slightly, but guess what? If you look at the, the, the role of the rotator cuff in the throwing mechanics, I'm not doing them any much good. Contralateral patterns. This develops from the prone position, okay? The support and the dynamic function, support side, uh, support function is on the opposite side of the body. So in this position, the support function is the left extremity and the right extremity. And if you look at the arrows, the dynamic phasic functions are occurring at the left extremity of the lower body and the right arm. And the pelvis and ribcage rotate in the opposite direction in the transverse plane. So what is a contralateral pattern? Crawling, tripod position, standing up, walking, and in sport, these are just some examples. Running, skating, cross-country skiing, jumping from one leg, and cycling. Look at the reciprocal motion of Connor McDavid in this picture, of the skiers and the jumper. All different sports, but same type of function. In the skiing picture, look at the right hip, right leg, that is the support stance, and the left leg is in, in, in the phasic function, and vice versa with the um, upper extremities. Athletic performance, this is where we, it all comes together. Everybody knows Michael Jordan. Everybody knows Michael Jordan's tongue. You think, that's, you think that is uh, purposeful? You think that is conscious? No, it is not conscious. He doesn't do that on purpose. And I've done, looked at many pictures of Michael Jordan. And, I, and please, please, if you find one where his tongue, if the ball is in his right hand, and if you can find a picture that his tongue is sticking out and through the right side, please send it to me because I'll be the first picture that I've seen in, in, that type of, um, in, in that type of dynamic function. When the ball is in his left hand, his tongue is all the way to his left side. When the ball is in his right hand, the tongue is central, it's down the midline. And guess what, when he's trying to win an NBA Finals championship, he's, he's not thinking about where his tongue is. Okay, Pavel Kolaj, Professor Pavel Kolaj, the, you know, the inventor of DNS, we, he were, we were discussing 
uh, he, he works with many, many, many Olympians. And we were discussing with javelin throwers how he increased somebody's um, distance by, by at least a meter. So we're talking significant gain by tongue position. He did not change any biomechanical motion of the shoulder or anything like that. He says, put your tongue here and the magic is gonna work. Because essentially that, the, it's, think about the neurology. Okay, our eyes are very important. The development of somebody that is unfortunately blind is gonna be different than somebody that has good, good uh, vision. Okay, and at eight weeks old, we should have 100% optic uh, contact. Okay, at six weeks old, we have 75%. So if a baby is not given emotional support by their parents, you know, and all, and, and, and isn't given external and afferent stimuli from the out, the outward world, um, we're gonna have changes. Um, You're gonna be the greatest dad ever. <laughs> <laughs> or the most annoying. Or the most annoying. <laughs> that too. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Your karate. kid's going to be so functional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> karate chop, karate chop. No. <laughs> so, yeah, but honestly, that's something that's very interesting that I've noticed with Michael Jordan and then look at um, this Olympic tennis player as well. Well, what is optimal tongue position for a jab thrower? And why is the tongue not going right at all? You said midline and left, but you said... Yes, I don't know. And you know, you know what I would also be very interested to see is how, what, what are the percentages of Michael Jordan when he drives to the basket, whether he's going right or left. If he wants to take it to all the way to the rack, um, I wonder if he's going to his left, okay? Because if he's on his left side and his tongue is moving this way, well, that, that's the motion that we, we want to see, you know? It, it's, and essentially, there are basketball players with, they, there's a reason why um, somebody says, oh yeah, I like, I like driving to the basket off of my left hand. Even if I'm a right-handed dominant player, but if I have to pull up and stop on a dime on somebody, I'm going to go to my right. If you look at the percentages of LeBron James, I believe he goes left more often. Yeah. Okay, and if he goes to his right, he's pulling up. If he's going to his left, he's taken to the rack. So, yeah. So, it's just something very interesting to see. So, obviously, the eyes and the tongue, they mimic the muscles. Okay, this is, this is, this is, this is developed early, early on. You know, the, the eyes and in many different trades of performance training. How many, all of us can have an example of what, when, when the eyes are important in something. Um, so moving forward. Wait one second. Yeah. Has anybody had any RPR experience? Sure. So you've done, with B or no? Yeah. So you've done the vision with the colors yeah. and everything, how your body retains it. Yeah. So I have a picture who, um, right-handed pitcher, so he's constantly looking to the left, and every time he's maxing out or going into like above 85%, he does everything with his head turned. That's where he finds his stability. And um, I'm just like wondering, like with the whole tongue, like there's also like points in your mouth, mm -hmm. and um, with experiences you have, you relate it to a color, and if you see that color, you can't perform, you can't be conscious with your movements, all that kind of thing. So like. Is that only from birth, or can you have like learned patternings in a position? Does that make sense? I think both. I think both. But I think with the tongue, even from like the PRI perspective, like my thought, if I've never even heard this DNS stuff, yeah. my thought would be, uh, 
you know, he's trying to find a way to get back to the left, right? Because right. they say they can't, we can't go to the right. right. Or we're, we can't go to the left, we're so on our right. So mm -hmm. now he's just finding any type of awareness to pull to himself over to the left. Right. And he's just using, happens to use his tongue as, as that driver. And then, you know, Neil, if you would like to speak on this in regards to PRI above the neck, you know, and facial asymmetries and uh, clenching of the jaws. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you might go for a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what, what is, from your experience, because you're more of an expert than, or more of an expert than me with this in regards to above the cervical, but if you could please share some of your experience. Uh, so, in, in terms of sports or life and life <laughs> restricted <laughs> you're tight so I was a um, I guess you would classify me as a right torsion but my facial asymmetry showed up at like six or seven years of age because I found a picture of myself at that age so in the infancy I wasn't like that and then once I was six or seven you see my left eye significantly higher than my right and left ear significantly higher than my right so in cranial pathological positions uh, if you look at a cranial sacral book it might be a right side bend instead of a left side bend or a right torsion. I don't know which one because the senile is the only difference. So I don't know what the hell I was in. Uh, but I had quit pitching at 13 years of age because my shoulder just just broke down completely. And this was back when we used to throw three innings, you know, it, during a little league season and then all stars. But we weren't playing year round. It was three innings a game. That was nothing. I couldn't pitch. I could not hold my arm steady past the seventh or eighth grade after pitching three innings. So I had quit throwing baseball. Uh, tinnitus, when I was 13, uh, no, freshman year, I developed tinnitus. Uh, plantar fasciitis in high school, and then again, my 20s for four or five years straight, both feet. Uh, first experience of lower back pain, sophomore year in college, where it lasted about six or seven months. Uh, it was just a freaking nightmare. Uh, it caused, probably caused the crossbite, and the crossbite eventually threw me back, you know, it just locked me up even, even more. But now that I realize I have a leg length discrepancy, which I never freaking, <laughs> no one ever noticed, I never noticed, but I, I have this, you know, about six millimeter uh, lift in my right shoe to even things out, and it feels completely different. Um, so I'm wondering how I, if those asymmetries showed my face because of an un unstable base of support, uh, it'd be interesting, I still, I don't have an answer, yeah. but I mean, I'm, the t since, you know, in the past year, since getting out of this cranial lesion position, the tinnitus has decreased considerably. Uh, decreased even more when I got, when I put this in to, to level me out. So to me, it was a grounding issue. Mm -hmm. I really think it was uh, psychologically and physically, I was just completely, completely ungrounded. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just, it can, it can really ruin some life. Pain. Spine can't rotate. You have an occiput that's on an atlas that's not right. You're not alternating, so you're not creating any sense of you know side to side movement. You're always in Peter I talk, you would be completely to the right. You have a left side of your right side and the right side of your right side, but you wouldn't have a left side. Uh, so it's real and it, it can really there's nothing I can't interfere with. So in regards to optimal performance, you know, obviously we're looking at all the things that we've discussed in this discussion. Um, we want reciprocal position and movements of the extremities. We want optimal timing. You know, look at the elite athletes hitting a, a forehand, backhand, overhead serve. 
versus the timing of an amateur player. Their support function, once they, you know, of the lower body, is going to be, it, it, it's going to be different than the amateur player. Their stabilization is going to be different. The timing is going to be different. Um, and you know, obviously, that comes through conscious awareness, but also through time, it goes to the sub, uh, you know, the um, support below. And obviously, we want to have a optimal biomechanical advantage um, with joint centration, so we can allow full range of motion of of that joint, so the muscles of that joint can then work at a greater efficiency. So how do we apply DNS in training? We must analyze the body segments, align them in a static position and during movement, okay? Because the static position that your body's in right now and the patterns that you're in right now could be different, perhaps different, um, in, while you're in a dynamic function. Um, you must compa we compare the optimal movement pattern or ideal movement pattern from the pictures that we saw on the previous slides from developmental kinesiology. We take that as a comparison. Okay, uh, if you look at the three-month position and verticalize it, that is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful squat position that is going to be uh, similar to some of the best squat back squatters in the world. Do you think? Uh, do you think adults should be able to squat like a baby? Well, I believe all of us use the restroom, right? right. We have to lower ourselves to the toilet, sure. you know. So I believe yes, our, we have to be able to squat to within ourselves. You know, we could we could make if there's any type of capsular restriction at any type of joint, we could that could decrease our efficiency and range of motion of a squat. You know, if we have a true anatomical change, perhaps in a cerebral palsy hip, you know, uh, no, they're right. not, they're not going to. Um, but I believe we all should be able to. That would be ideal. I and then from like, if there's somebody does have an anatomical issue, mm -hmm. uh, you'd have to seek that out, make sure that that's not a thing before you start trying to slam something down to a squat. Yeah, absolutely. And a perfect perfect segue is I, I have like hepatitis disease in my right hip. You know, so at age five, I had tremendous knee pain, and we, my mother and I, uh, uncovered this when we were late to school, and I was running to school. I said, I can't. My knee hurts so bad. And thank goodness I had a good pediatrician. And think about this. This is 20 years ago. Think about how much times have changed. He goes, all right, I'm ordering x-rays of the knees and the hips. Okay? A lot of orthopedists today, I need a lot of doctors today, knee pain, boom, let's get a picture of that knee. Well, my knee would have been perfectly fine. There would have been no changes. You could have done the CAT scan, MRI, anything you want, you're not gonna find a damn thing. If you looked at my MRI, uh, my imaging of my right hip, the hip, the femoral head in the acetabulum, it, it was like bone was not even formed. It was dead. There was no blood supply to the, no oxygen, no nutrients to that joint. Okay, so think about now as so your I'm- your hip didn't hurt? Or it did? The hip did not hurt at first. Okay. Um, at first. But now over time, I'm running late to school, at five years old, six years old, seven years old, eight years old. And actually what's interesting with like Hepperthes disease is that blood flow comes back. It's idiopathic, idiopathic right now and there's no known cause for, and they don't understand how the, from my understanding right now, how the blood flow comes back. 
Well, with blood flow comes back, oxy oxygen and nutrient-rich substances are gonna come and form the bone and give it um, better bone density, as Sal was pointing to before. Uh, but during that time, you know, I would love to know now at what point or how, how long did I ha was I deficient with that blood supply and when did that blood supply come back? And I would love to understand what movements I was doing then to, to fully understand why the hip became the shape that it was. Um, and I've had, and because of that, you know, I, I was, I was pretty, pretty good basketball player, uh, highly, highly, highly functional and pretty athletic. And I had a doctor from Columbia Presbyterian, um, Dr. David Roy, and I owe a lot to him. Um, and my case was brought up in many, many conferences. And if you're looking at the picture, and this is why, yeah, imaging is necessary um, in, in many cases, and it does provide some assistance and and um, instant like approval of the of where we're what we're thinking or our, our, our clinical thought process and decision making and i'm so grateful for this because my life today would be totally different if if he took the advice of others and this is why he's one of the best um, orthopedic surgeons in the world um all the doctors were saying you have to have to have to put this kid in a cast for one year Forget about the anatomical trauma that would occur and the atrophy. Imagine the emotional response of a kid, five, six, seven years old in a cast for one year. <laughs> you know? Also, as I develop, my case was still in conferences. You must do this like length procedure. You must. And he said, if you look at the picture of my patient and you can look at his ability to function on my treatment table and if you understand the ability at, at which he's performing on the on the basketball court it would be negligent for me to do this like on this procedure thank god he didn't you know that's a very invasive and you know big surgery so um seventh grade my 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 hip Actually, I'm actually above the, the, the average height of somebody with like Kaepernick's disease. So I'm like, I'm 5'9". So at, at one point, my right hip grew to the um, a matured, a matured uh, size. So they had to stop the growth of the, of the plate of the hip because it was, they didn't want it to cause further dysfunction if it continued to grow. So they stopped that in seventh grade. Sophomore year of high school, I began to have a tremendous groin pain in, in my hip. And MRIs were negative and essentially rehabbed for a year, came back junior year. I, I can't do this. I can't, after practice, after I am relaxing and the adrenaline stopped running, I couldn't lift up my leg to change my pants. I used to call my mother from the train station, which I had to walk two blocks. I said, can you pick me up? I can't walk anymore. I'd be able to perform for the three hours and you better believe that. But once I stopped, it was, I was, I was in agony. So, um, Long story short, they, they're going in exploratory right now because everything's negative on MRI. I had a full rupture of one of the hip ligaments, and that's very difficult to do, to a, a tremendous amount of arthritis. Uh, three, I destroyed my labrum. Um, so they repaired all of that. Came out, rehabbed for a year, came back, played. Same thing, I could perform. But man, something's not, like I just can't, I, I, I feel terrible, I'm in agony after I perform. And at this point in my life, I was getting like mad at the sport. 
Um, but you know that that wasn't the case. That, that shouldn't have been the case. Um, I go back into surgery. They did a full osteotomy. They went into the femoral head, and they it's like an egg and socket. They tried to make it more of a ball and socket. They took the greater trochanter because let's go back to these pictures of the anatomical hips. Okay, this one is a leg half perthy hip. All right, this greater trochanter. See how it's in line with the femoral head right there. Mm -hmm. Mine, this one, raised up here. So they had to excite. They had to cut that along this line. They had to lower it over here and then put two pins in. So it could look more like this. So think about functionally this up here. Thinking about your question uh, about adult squatting, which I firmly believe they should. Um, you see, Middle Eastern cultures, they go to the bathroom by squatting. Sure. You see it, that's like pretty common, and I think they have better, way better mobility, using that strength than we do. But um, also, I was reading a study on the cultures that live the longest. And right now, I think the number one culture or top four is uh, Japanese culture. They don't use chairs or anything, so they squat and get on the floor daily through the whole routine. They the longest, if they say they attribute that to the longest uh, lifespan. It's just them getting up and down and yeah, being I mean, able to squat like that without a child. I'm with you, man. I think that's it. And then go on, on yeah. the topic. Oh. No, no, I was going to say, because you see a lot of um, other commercial um, advice there, right? even the supplement version say you have to go parallel and in the parallel um, it's your femur pretty much parallel to the floor rather than going all the way down into your maximum reflection one more time because I was just looking yeah. at the cultural differences yeah. of the hip from yeah. one more time could you just yeah so, so you know like in certain certain um, coaches advisors book authors would say you know when you squat do the parallel some they would define what parallel is. Parallel would be that your femur is pretty much parallel to the floor. So you're not in full knee flexion when you're in the squat. And then your um, your pelvis is not even in neutral or posterior uh, tilt, right? Uh, but when you're in full squat, you're you are in posterior pelvic tilt, your knee and your hips are in full flexion. Um, but then, you know, they, all right, well, in order for you to have a fully functional squat, you have to be at a parallel. But I, I kind of just find that to be a little counterintuitive. Because number one, you know, you're, you're just fully um, extensor dominant all this time. You're not fully completing your range of motion. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. Like I, said, I don't know what's accurate, what's true, and what is, what is functional, and what's supposed to be mm -hmm. um, a proper advice. Yeah, it's, 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 I don't have, I'm, I could have my thoughts, mm -hmm. um, you know, if I said I had the answer, I would be telling you, I would be doing a disservice to everyone in here. Um, when people are just focused on squatting for the term ass to grass, mm -hmm. well, why? What, what's your goal? You know, if you have the biomechanical efficiency and ability to be able to get into that extreme range of motion with maximum deflection, um, well, all right, well, great. Me, 
with my, I will never ever ever try and train uh, to go into that max that that as to grass squat. Okay. Um, what what my goal is because I have an anatomical deficiency, and I will tell you I I said years ago I will never ever 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 be able to hit 90 degrees on a squat, ever degree ever, and and Meg could it could um, you know say something on this, but I've been working a lot on just mobility of the hip joint, uh, being able to have that conscious awareness of what position that should be in, and and with with. Um, working with DNS, working with PRI, working with so many different types of philosophies and techniques and interventions, I'm, I'm hitting 90 degrees, you know? So yes, I have an anatomical compromise, mm -hmm. but perhaps I wasn't hitting 90 degrees because capsular restrictions through adaptive changes over time. Perhaps my, my muscles weren't able to, they didn't know how to activate below, eight, greater than 80 degrees. You know, so it's there are a lot of lot of factors. I think if you want to go to a deep squat with full maximal flexion, with your sacrum almost touching the ground, okay. But like, if we're gonna load this, yeah. Depends um, on are you uh, we're talking about in, in the context yeah, so, of putting weight on your back and going. Right, right, so, so, so there's a con, like yeah. these are con conflicting recommendations. Really, it's like on one on one side, you know, don't go all the way down. Don't go into public to you know, go into maximum deflection and then the other is just like right stay just even 90 or slightly below 90 so that your 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 calves were you know barely touching your, your thigh yeah. yeah I guess it just depends to me it yeah. just, just depends on whether you're weighting you're putting weight on this person's back or not yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah I mean, it's just, it's just your body weight on that's a great thing to do yeah if you're putting a ton of weight on that right now we're now we're putting 320 pounds. Yeah, pounds. Yeah. 300 pounds of, of, of pressure in an axial loaded position in a posterior pelvic tilt, going all the way down to uh, that maximal squat position. That's not really good for my uh, L5, S1, L4, L5, L3, L4 disc. But I mean, when you look at uh, Olympic lifters, I man, catching cleans, mm -hmm. they are yeah. grass. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. they do it well. Yes. Like form, you know, anatomically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to say to answer your question, yeah. I am a weightlifter, and so I do those activities, but I've also learned how to do them like with proper technique, and I'm always developing that. But I'm a personal trainer, and I work with gen pop clients, mainly like 40s to 70s. I don't always, I don't feel the need to get them past grass. I think if they have the ability to do so just standing, like as a warm-up, like, hey, can you do that? Yeah. If they can, if they're restricted, it's like kind of guide how I'm gonna train them that day or if I'm gonna modify the workout. Um, but I'm looking to see like, okay, can you breathe through this position? If they, if they find that they're holding their breath even at the very bottom, but it looks good, I'm just, I'm not okay with it. So, but for me, like, parallel is gonna be where they, I don't know the right terminology in terms of science, but like that's where the joint has the, the most resistance, or that's kind of, I forgot the name of it, but that's usually where, okay, that's good enough. If they have the ability to do it well, and they can go a little bit lower, osteograss or whatever, I'm okay with loading it. But I don't really, I don't do any axial loading besides maybe a safety bar squat if I see that they can do it good. Like I don't have anyone do weightlifting, I don't have anyone do back squatting or front squatting really, mainly goblet. Mm -hmm. I always got them strong on like one leg. But that's just, that's what I see that they need and there's really no need for me to, to go yeah, to develop them like as professional athletes if they're just trying to like go back to their nine to five job and feel good.
Makes sense. And speaking of the uh, Olympic athletes, um, you know, I was just had the opportunity to be with Stuart McGill this past week and listen to him speak in LA. And going back to our cultural, um, our, the, like uh, our culture affects us, okay? And here I have some notes from his, his, his talk. And he was saying that the, if you look at the greatest squatters or Olympic lifters in the world, they're gonna come from Poland, Ukraine, Russia, those types of um, countries in that region. They have a shallow, more shallow hip socket, okay, uh, allowing a greater range of motion. But this also constitutes the higher rates of hip dysplasia. Okay, the ones the Scottish hip, you ever hear about that? As well, essentially, this is more of a deep socket. Okay, these were from the countries um, Normandy, France, Scotland, and Ireland. You know, I don't, I'm not sure if you see many Olympic champions from those countries. That's my issue. That's the issue. <laughs> 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 there it is, man. There we go. I was just going to ask, what about China? Uh, yeah, so uh, also I have here uh, Japan um, is also within the group of Poland, Ukraine, Russia, and they have higher, and they have higher um, incidence of that. So I forget where it was. I don't know so where it was. Sure. So they're not going to, the, the deep hip socket will not allow, will never be great squatters. Correct. But they, they will never be an Olympic lifter. Yeah, what, 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 yes. Because I can get into a full squat and I can breathe. Mm. I can't hang out there. It's not it's not no, 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 no. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. To forward, to backwards. <laughs> <laughs> but one year ago, I couldn't even get. I could get down for one breath without falling backwards. Yeah. Now I can actually get down there and breathe. Mm. So that's a big. It's a big difference. Mm. Just, my goal was to get a full squat, but there's mm. no way it's going to happen. Let's just say I'm eight little Asian. Yeah, so then um, the, the, the individuals from the country, you know, Normandy, France, Scotland, Ireland, um, they have high, highest rates of femoral acetabular impingement. That's so funny. That's what I'm working with yep. right now. It's wild. There we go. Hmm. So I thought that was, that was very interesting. And what Dr. Stuart McGill says is that Olympic lifting finds you, you don't find it. Hmm. Hmm. What do you say? France, Scotland, and Ireland have the highest rates of femoral acetabular impingement, highest rates of hip dysplasia, but also like the best Olympic lifters in the world come from Poland, Ukraine, Russia, Japan, who have more. What sport is the Scottish good at? Do I need to start working? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll have to <laughs> 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 The Highland Games, go do that. Rugby or something. Take me off the pen, don't worry. So it's a Gaelic issue, because the Norm, the Norman, Normandy, People from Normandy historically are the same race, if you want to call it that, as Irish and, and Scots. They're uh, they're Gaelic. I believe Gaelic Saxons. Uh, Sac well, they live in Germany, right? They Saxon born in England. But at any rate, yeah, yeah. the North, yeah. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I never realized that's why there's so many redheads in Normandy, France, because it's the same genetic <laughs> population. Did you give me thoughts on why it develops like this? Well, um, I, I can't say I can't say he elaborated so on it. Using it great. I can't say he elaborated a lot because uh, uh, in regards to that, because we had a lot of material to cover, but he, he speaks a lot in regards to um, on his podcast and stuff. You could definitely find that. But also, what Matt was talking about in regards to these cultures, whether they sit a lot, whether you know, there are different types of uh, action uh, or positions that they're in that's going to cause. 
structural change. take somebody that um, is from a country and put them in a Japanese culture at an earlier age, I think, from, from my opinion, this is not yeah. a fact, uh, from my own opinion, I believe you're going to have habitual changes to that, to that. you know, if I, if I get adopted and I'm in Japan at six weeks old, okay, and grow up there, as opposed to I get adopted at three, month, three years old, I'm gonna, it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. So that's a great question, but that's, that would be my, my answer. But you would see compensation mus muscularly, right? And then as that person, say he grew, went there and was two years old and grew up in Japan, this guy from Scotland, by the time he was 40 or 50, he would have some serious hip issues because he was trying to adapt his genetic Correct. disposition. Yeah. And you'd see that compensation factor, right? Like, yeah. Unless... Yeah, the NS and Mark
So what is what is in an anatomical reference is the neonatus's posture. Okay, from the hand, you're going to have at, at you know let's say three weeks old. The fingers are going to be in flexion. The thumb is going to be inside the hand. The wrist is going to be flexed. Is this uh, is it cortical? Yeah, yeah. At the elbow and forearm, you're going to have pronation and flexion. At the shoulder, you're going to have protraction and internal rotation. At the shoulder, you're going to have elevation. Okay. Now, at the shoulder, you're going to have elevation. Now, at the thoracic spine. You're gonna have kyphosis at the um, at the pelvis. You're gonna have um, at the posterior tilt. Uh, yeah, posterior tilt. Okay. Um, at the hip, you're gonna have flexion internal rotation. At the knee, you're gonna have flexion external rotation. So that's 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 the posture. So if you look at its rotation, it's like relatively quickly. Very. It's like it's like increased tone. Yeah. yeah. Safety, safety, safety. Is that the startle reflex also? Would you see? Would that be the position of arms? I didn't think of it like that, but hey, I'm not sure, but you do bring a, a good point. You definitely do that. Yeah, I think it's, to, but it's not It's not so much of an internal, right? And the startle would be like more like a, yeah. Their like, reaction to like you. Bring it to protect the neck. If somebody scared yeah. me, now I'm just thinking from my own experience. If somebody scared me, I'm gonna go into extension. I'm not gonna crawl into flexion. Mm -hmm. See what I do the opposite. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, exactly. And it happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> And you and raise your shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> you, you're that's ready that's to fight. I'm ready to just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Position. I'm, yeah. I've given up. Yeah, I, I just want to like go back to what you were saying about the sympathetic um, you know, state when you're about to live or do something. Uh, you know, when you're in a sympathetic state, your muscles are also in a protective mode right away, and so you're less likely to be able to complete your range of motion, even if you want to, because you're you're you're. Um, you know, that reverse or that inverse stretch reflex that's supposed to happen once you hit your full range of motion is activating too early, right? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Nic Nicole from South Carolina, yeah. she's an OT, she's working on this. She's doing um, research on, with police officers and military because they're always in such a protective state and contracted that she's finding that their performance is significantly impeded and they're um, injury prone because they're always in this tensive state and they're not getting that full range of motion. So her work has been in trying to pull them into a more parasympathetic state through all sorts of different uh, theories in order to kind of allow them cognitively, emotionally, and physically to like perform better, which that was really interesting. So last two slides here wrap us up um, you know how to apply DNS in training align the body segments in a static position and, and uh, during movement in a joint and joint centrated state compare the optimal movement patterns from developmental kinesiology to how we move today um, whether it's loaded or unloaded the analysis of the sport technique okay there's no question about it we have ipsilateral and contralateral patterns okay and some sports 
and are contralateral more dom dominant, more some are ipsilateral, and some require both. Um, so um, analysis of the support technique, compare this technique to the global movement with trunk stabilization as the basis, and then you have the extremity movements for the ipsilateral and contralateral pattern. Rules to follow, keep all joints in a functional joint-centrated position. Upright the spine, this enables segmental rotation of the vertebra. We must have sagittal stabilization, preceding any other type of stabilization in other planes, regulation of the intra-abdominal pressure to the entire abdominal cylinder must be equal, and this is achieved from the three to four and a half month stage. So this is our first stabilization that we acquire, so we should not use it, lose it. Also remember, whether it's an ipsilateral or contralateral movement pattern, the shoulder and pelvic line uh, are moved differently. In the ipsilateral pattern, they move in the right, same direction, and the contralateral will be opposite. And resistance against stepping forward function uh, with must have adequate trunk stabilization. The trunk stabilization is compromised with that type of resistance. A, the resistance is too much, or B, they're not ready for resistance. And ability, and while maintaining the ability to keep all these joints in a centrated position. And thank you.